Hello, everybody, and welcome to my podcast. Two weeks ago, I gave a shoe in my house. It was reasonably well attended. It was about Parshat Shalach. I was talking about the nature of grasshoppers and how they never find a home. They're always wandering and how that identifies them. They're afraid of losing their core and losing who they really are by virtue of settling in the land and essentially becoming like trees, stuck to the land, defined by the land, consumed by the land, and less than what they were. Parshat Shalach Hashem ends up defining us as the people of Hashem in the land of Hashem. We're, in a way, correlated to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and that enables us to grow uh, into something greater than what we were before, and enables the land to grow into something greater than it was before. That sure was interesting, I think. People enjoyed it. Um, but afterwards, I was wondering, you know, people reacted very positively, and I was wondering, as I sometimes do, what prevents more than 10 people from coming to Shur, right? What prevents having the larger numbers of people that sometimes show up at other people's events, even if they say things that are particularly interesting, right? And the standard answers I can come up with. Um, and, and these are questions that everybody faces, right? Uh, you're working, you're an expert at something, you're not an expert at something, whatever it happens to be. We often feel like our impact is not as great as we hope it would be. Even those people who have tremendously you know, uh, huge public personas, if you want to measure impact in terms of uh, social impact on a broad scale, have um, challenges about whether or not they're doing things that are sufficient to who they are. Right? They're winning enough championships or whatever it is. Right? People don't end up somehow satisfied by this. Of course, I've got many, many reasons to be satisfied. Um, you can read my book, The Multicolored Coat, discusses where I am, uh, how I've gotten here, why. Um, I've been blessed in an incredible number of ways. For me, there's this feeling that with these blessings, there comes an obligation, not for me to be more successful, but an obligation for me to uh, to help other people. I wrote, um, for example, I wrote uh, quite a few um, profiles of people in my community, some people outside my community, to try and emphasize the incredible things they've learned and they've done with their lives that often go almost entirely unnoticed. Tomorrow night we're having an event, a healing event, which is an uplifting event in our house uh, in order to discuss how a tzedakah, a particular amuta, um, raises people up, what that means, how people think about it. He is not a fundraiser, but an idea raiser to help people come to grips with what it is to actually lift people up, as opposed to various and sundry other things we can do sometimes you know, which involve giving money or whatever, um, and can actually be counterproductive. So looking at all this, the question really for me is not how do I have more of an impact? I mean, that's useful. Um, but an impact by itself is not valuable. The question for me is really how do I help people more? And I think this is a question a lot of people ask a lot of the time. I hope they do. Whether or not they have answers is a different issue. We can look at tzedakah as one thing. We can look at all sorts of things that we can do as different things to help people. But the specific question for me was, how do I help people? So I pulled aside a member of my community. I mean, I, it's not my community, but he's you know with a co-member of my community, who um, I respect quite a bit. And I talked to him. He's been through the wars uh, in the past, <laughs> in some ways, quite literally. Um, and 
and I pulled him aside and I asked him for his advice, for his thoughts, for his feedback. And he said I had to do two things differently. It took a while to get it out of him because he's a nice guy. Um, but I've been you know, pinging people who I know and who I, uh, who I respect for these sorts of questions to try and understand. And these two things weren't practical things. Like, you know, you have to be an expert in something or you have to get yourself recognized, whatever it happens to be, uh, or do better Facebook feeds or whatever. His answers were, number one, essentially, you have to answer something people lack. You have to address a problem that they have. Uh, and specifically, he was talking about uh, the problem that so many people in our societies face, which is one of mental or spiritual struggle in some form. I guess I've expressed a form of it for myself here. And the second thing he said was that you have to uh, you have to not be afraid to say what you want to say. Now, I'm always afraid to say what I want to say, and not because I'm afraid of offending people, although I don't want to offend people unnecessarily. The reason I pull my punches in a lot of ways is because I've been trained to always zoom out, right? My education, my background, my thought processes and so many of these things is not to say this group is right and this group is wrong, but that this group could see what the other group has done right and that other group could see what the first group has done right. And both groups could end up being enhanced by virtue of having a broader perspective than they had before. So I'm not sitting here trying to um, build a profile by virtue of coming out against anybody. That's not really my goal. It's certainly not my goal. I don't think there's any uh, points you can be, obviously, with decent arguments, good erudition. Uh, you could come out and say, I'm on this side or that side of whatever particular contemporary debate you want. Get yourself a lot of uh, notoriety if you're good at it. Um, I think I'd be reasonably good at it, perhaps. Um, but the fact is, is that I don't have those convictions. Um, I, I don't have that strength of belief in particular positions um, that are normal, that, that identify with the tribes that exist in our world today, uh, that would enable me or even make me want to do this. Uh, and we'll get to a bit of that in a, in a bit, because it's actually quite critical to what I'm going to talk about today. So I know this is going to be a long, sure already, a long discussion. Um, but it's very much an open-ended discussion as well. We'll see how we go. I really do appreciate everyone being along for the ride. So this week, I also had an opportunity to speak in my synagogue. And I want to share the speech. It was about Parshat Korach. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the Torah readings, Parshat Korach is where Korach rebels against Moshe and Aaron with his friends, Datan and Aviram. I don't know if they're friends, colleagues, whatever. Uh, and they end up being eaten up by the earth. It's one of these timeless images. And the earth opens itself, consumes them, and then closes, and they vanish. And the priests who are with them, well, they're not priests, but the people who are with them offer up uh, this incense, and they're consumed by heavenly fire and mass, 250 people. Korach is the, is the kind of episode that I think of when uh, I read, let's say, a quote, there's a quote from Christian Bale, who, who played Moses in another version of the Exodus, one I didn't actually end up watching, um, partially because of this quote. The, the actor who played him said, quote, I think the man was likely schizophrenic and was one of those barbaric individuals that I have ever read about in my life. Right, so we have this, this concept of this brutality 
that flashes outwards in this Torah reading. And, uh, and I spoke about it in shul. I think that the speech I gave is relevant to this discussion. I'll deliver a short version of it. But basically, Moshe comes against Korach, and Korach's friends are called Anshe Shem. They're men of renown, men of name. In the Torah, although for some reason people don't call this out, but in the Torah, Anshe Shem are a very bad thing. They're what leads the flood. There's what people trying to demonstrate that they're giborim, grabbing whatever they want, taking whatever they want. They are contrary to the will of God on almost every level. So you have Anshe Shem. It's not that they're respected people. <clears throat> Moshe was a respected person, but he didn't live for his name. <coughs> he was the most humble of people. We can have another discussion about what that means. Um, but fundamentally, he didn't live for his name. And of course, if you if you live for your name, then you're willing to do all of what I've just talked about. You're willing to play one tribe against another or flatter people with, with BS or whatever it happens to be in order to build up your name and reputation, which is ultimately what Korach and his friends are doing. They flatter the people. The end of last week's Torah reading, we get the mitzvah tzitzit. It's meant to remind the people that they are meant to be holy. And instead, Korach takes it a little further and says, Hashem. Not only is everybody holy, but God is actually integral. God is actually within them. The people themselves almost define God. A concept that's never really gone away, and we'll get into it some more. So you end up with this leader who builds a fake foundation. Now, this is not a new concept. Aristotle writes about it, right? The idea of a demagogue who's a flatterer, who tells everybody that everything is exactly, that they're great, that they're awesome people, right? You can apply it to whatever politicians you don't like. It's typically what democratic politicians do in order to get themselves in the position of power. Flattery is tremendously important. And so Moshe's pushing back against this flattery. He's pushing back against this falsehood. And he does it by setting up the Tanaviram and Korach for a big fall that shows all the arguments they had are actually built on this lack of truth, this falsehood, this false foundation that will ultimately lead nowhere useful. It's all very well and good, but Moshe's not just fighting against the people and Datan and Aviram and Korach. Moshe's fighting against God. <laughs> because this is a second way of establishing great might and great power, and that is by replacing or fundamentally reprogramming the people who follow you. Uh, we can see it in the Uyghur provinces in China. Um, we can see it in in various and sundry, or many other cases in history, particularly with the totalitarians, uh, uh, um, left and right. But I think the ideological component of trying to reprogram people it exists on both sides. Right? This idea that you're going to take a people and you're going to cleanse it of anything that might disagree with the position you want and replace it with something that is fundamentally reborn into the image of the leadership itself. So the, the thing that happens here is in the middle of the reading, the Tananavi Ram say, we're not going to go up to talk to Moshe. He even takes our eyes out. Right? Moshe, it's like Moshe has been, been, been lying to them, been deceiving them. And even if he deceives them so much that he's going to remove their eyes, they're not going to fall for it anymore. They know they're godly. They're not playing a game. They know they're godly. They know they're godly, and they know that Moshe promised the land. Moshe responds with this incredibly, first of all, he's devastated, and then he responds with this incredibly weird statement. He says, I haven't taken a single donkey from them. 
if we go back to the donkey, the mitzvah of the donkey is that if you if you have a firstborn donkey, you have to bring another animal as a substitute for the korban to, to offer up a recognition to Hashem for the gift of the of the next generation. But you don't offer a donkey, it's not a kosher animal. So instead you offer another animal. And if you fail to offer another animal, then you have to axe the donkey in the back of the neck. Now this commandment comes up after we leave Mitzrayim, but it also comes up right after the sin of the calf. When the people were stiff-necked, and Hashem was going to eliminate them. What's the solution for this? The people have to recognize that they're going to offer something else in order to get past their mistakes and their shortcomings and their stiff-neckedness. And if they don't, eh, they might as well have their axe, the back of their necks axed. So what Moshe is saying here by bringing up this donkey is that Hashem wanted to replace the people. He wanted to replace them after Chetegel, after the sin of the calf. But he didn't replace them. Moshe argued vociferously. He put everything on the line to argue with God and say no. In fact, Moshe does that twice in this week's Torah portion, in Korach, Parshat Korach itself. He manages to stop Hashem from replacing the people. So the people are a bit like, 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 like um, Gotham, not Gotham. I don't know what the name of the city is for, for Spider-Man. But whatever city Spider-Man is in, right? The press says Spider-Man destroyed this, Spider-Man destroyed that. But they're not seeing the big picture of all the things that Spider-Man saved. Moshe is doing the same thing. Moshe, in the best tradition of Jewish leadership in the Torah, is, in fact, this is why we're called Yisrael, is because we wrestle against God and man, or man and God, right? We're constantly struggling against Hashem and other people, which is remarkable. You look at the case of Moshe himself. God chooses Moshe as the leader of the people. Moshe, who never gets along with God. He's always arguing. Well, maybe not never, but he's constantly arguing. As opposed to Aaron, Hashem says to Aaron, go see your brother. Aaron goes, no arguments, no questions, nothing done. Just go. That's it. That's the end of the story. But Aaron's not the leader. Moshe is the leader. So as I continue with the Devar Torah, I described how Korah thought all the people were holy. He was going to build in a false foundation. Moshe recognized that they weren't holy, but he also wasn't going to allow them to be replaced. He was going to defend them and stand by them. Maybe he was worried that Korah wouldn't. But a generation later, well, go back a bit, Korah says to Moshe, Rav Lachem, it's enough for you guys. You don't need to rule these people. They're ready for themselves. A generation later, though, in Parshat Chukat, the very next reading, Moshe hits the rock instead of speaking to it. And the rock represents Israel, and the water represents spirituality, and he can speak to it and bring it out. He doesn't have to use force. But Moshe hasn't learned. Moshe hasn't changed, even though the people have become holier. So what does Hashem say to Moshe? Ravlach, it's enough for you. You've already done your job. It's discussing the context of elections in Israel. When you want to choose leaders, ultimately, although it might be very hard to find, you want to choose people who will raise you up, not flatter you with falsehood, not replace you like the communist dictators in China, but who will raise you up so that you won't need them in generations to come. But of course, Moshe is not the one who brings all this peace. He's not the one who brings the 38 years of peace that follow the story of Korach. His attempts, his suppression of Korach's people on the Tananavi Ram does not result in peace, it results in a general widespread uprising. Hashem rescues Aaron's reputation. 
go into that perhaps another time if people are curious. But at the end of the story, the thing that actually brings about the 38 years of peace is the stupidest miracle in the history of miracles. Everybody's supposed to put a rod inside the tent, and the next morning, they'll take their rods out, and voila, one of them's a branch. No, it's maybe not a branch, maybe it's a pole with some leaves sticking out of it and some almonds on it. But in terms of magic tricks, right, this is something that, uh, that a five-year-old could probably pull off. You just sneak into the tent at night with an almond branch, take out the one that didn't match, lay it down, voila, and, you know, find a nice straight one so it looks good, and voila, you've got a, uh, you've got a miracle. And this silly little miracle, not the grand earth-eating miracles, not all this other tremendous stuff, which I think the people might associate with, 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 with another god, almost a demon figure who's willing to do great destruction. None of those things results in peace and quiescence and development of the people. They all result in more and more and more rebellion. In fact, we can see this trend from the very beginning, even in Egypt. The Jewish people say, speaking to Moshe and Aaron, be a f- the sh- Hashem should look upon you and judge. Because you've made our, our rescuer, our savior, our God, to be abhorrent in the eyes of Paro and the eyes of his servants. Right? From the very beginning, they think Moshe is representing something else, something dark. But somehow this almond... This almond branch changes their perspective. And so the question that you have to answer is, what's so special about almonds? I mean, I guess they're tasty. Um, But what is it that makes almonds so incredible? Now, I've talked about almonds in the past, talked about almonds in past years, but I've learned so much more this year. And I want to give a little bit more context. I was talking about what I needed to do, how I needed to deal with um with people's pain, with trying to understand the context of pain um, uh, and, and the mental struggles and spiritual struggles people have uh, when I was talking to this this member of my community. And I, well, the next day, uh, or two days later, sorry, on Monday, um, I had a recurrence of my sudden unilateral hearing loss. Now, this is not the end of the world, <clears throat> but it's not pleasant. I basically lost a bunch of my hearing on one side. Something had happened to me after my uh, second vaccination shot, and I got sick on Sunday, and Monday somehow it got re-triggered. I don't know how, and I woke up with uh, a reduction in hearing. So I had this very short-term, well, not short-term, I don't know if it's going to be a permanent hearing loss, but, but, uh, but I had this experience of a loss right on the background, I mean, not the world's worth loss, but a loss right on the back back end of this conversation and the context of Korach and you have. And this almond branch is a connection to these ideas of loss and gain and good and evil. It's very basic. Uh, almonds were first, first wildly appeared, uh, wild almonds first wildly appeared, um, that were actually called sweet almonds somewhere between 12,000 and 3,000 years ago. And people began to really actively cultivate them around 1600 BCE, sorry, 12,000, 3000 BCE. People began to really cultivate them actively around 1600 BCE. Now, I'm mentioning sweet almonds. For those of you who aren't aware, there's a second kind of almond called a bitter almond, which is used to be and still is the dominant wild almond strain. Bitter almonds are really pretty interesting. 
So they're a tasty fruit, of course, and people like to eat bitter almonds. Well, they don't like to eat bitter almonds. It might look like it's tasty to eat almonds. And so you go, you, you look at the almond, you have a bite of the almond, um, and it becomes a problem because almonds infuse their fruit with something called glycoside amygdalin. And when you chew it, it breaks and mixes the components inside the, uh, inside the uh, fruit, and it becomes hydrogen cyanide. In other words, it can make you very, very sick. Um, and so there's all these, you know, great murder books that have been written about um, people poisoned, and you can smell the smell of almonds, and, and that's your key that they've been poisoned by cyanide because it's got this echo of almond, apparently. I've never really smelled cyanide, but I can believe it. Um, in ancient Egypt, apparently, uh, I think it was peach cores have the same thing. You eat a peach core, you can kill yourself. Um, FYI, don't tell your kids to eat peach cores. Um, they have that same component. Um, and so it was used uh, sometimes for, for murder uh, in ancient Egypt, or at least in books about ancient Egypt. I'm not sure if it was actually done. Uh, and it ends up being uh, a lot of fun. The, the funny thing about these almonds, though, is that you have then this single fruit, that can be nutritious, or it can be deadly. It can be good, or it can be evil. It's hard to tell the distinction between these two. Yeah, there's a, people who are real experts can see and understand, I believe, uh, which tree is which in advance, but they are very, very similar trees. And so you have this image of good and evil built into this tree, which is phenomenal. But before we get into that in any great detail, the almond comes up in one other critical place. The menorah is described. It reads, uh, part of the description of when the menorah should be built, Shlosha giv'im meshukadim bekaneh echad keftor vefereach, sorry, vefereach veshlosha giv'im ashkirim bekaneh echad, da-da-da-da. Read in English, three cups made like almond blossoms in one branch, a knob on a flower, and three cups made like almond blossoms in the other branch, a knob on a flower. And so the six branches going out of the candlestick, and in the candlestick, four cups made like almond blossoms, the knobs thereof, and the flowers thereof. So the menorah is being described as an almond. It's not really the image we normally have, but it's an almond. The menorah is an almond bush. And you end up with this, this, this third connection, which is fascinating, at least to me, which is that Moshe comes across this bush that burns, that's never consumed. And when we look at the Mishkan and the articles that are within the Mishkan, the articles in the Mishkan represent Hashem's revelations to the people. The, uh, the Aaron HaKodesh, where the, where the uh, Ten Commandments are kept, represents, of course, very directly the giving of the Torah to people in Harsinai, who walk backwards in time. The table, the golden table with the czar, with the alien boundary around it, represents God's table, which the elders ate in the presence of Hashem. The lechem panim, the bread of revelation, where it says that the man will be the way in which Hashem will show his face to the people, the manna. Uh, and so that's the bread of revelation that we put in in the articles. It's another revelation of Hashem. Uh, and then the, uh, the last one is the menorah. The menorah, which we light continuously. It's a tamid light. It's always on. And never burns away. It's never consumed. We see a, an echo of this, uh, kind of a miniature version of this miracle being realized in its full sense with Hanukkah. Right? We, 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 we light for eight days. We're celebrating this menorah that miraculously burned for eight days when it only had enough oil for one. did manage to burn continuously without being burned. But the idea of conservation of energy, 
of breaking the fundamental rules of physics was established in the Chanukiah, in the menorah, in the second, in, in the temple that the uh, the Maccabim rescued and uh, and rebuilt. Maccabim had their other problems. We won't get into that today. But this this thread of this particular miracle of a, of, a, of a flame of a bush, an almond bush, that burns without being consumed, runs throughout the history of the symbol of the Jewish people and the symbol of Hashem. So this almond is a, it's a tree of good and evil, which we'll get to in a lot, in a lot about right here. And it's also the menorah and the sneh. All of these ideas are all interwoven with one another, but there's another idea that's going on here, this idea of creation without destruction. How do you how do you wrap that up in a tree of good and evil? Evil would seem to suggest destruction. How does that work? I just want to place us back in the Garden of Eden for a minute here. Let's go way back. Let's pretend we're Chava. I'll put on a dress. I've done it before for Perm. Pretend I'm Chava. I come across... This commandment that's been passed down to me. And the commandment says, don't touch this fruit. All right, this fruit is so dangerous you can't even touch it. Certainly you can't eat it. Now, of course, Chava's got it wrong. The fruit of the almond tree can be touched, right? It's a fruit that, that, that doesn't mix its poison unless you chew it. And so what you end up with is a commandment that's been passed down by people who have obviously suffered from the effects of this tree, and they've built what we would call in Jewish law, I guess, we've built fences around the fruits to understand that we're not supposed to eat it because it's fundamentally dangerous to do so. But Chava looks at this tree, and I have no idea Let's say it's an almond tree. Let's say there's been thousands of years of human history that say, don't eat this, don't touch this. This thing is fundamentally dangerous. And she says, you know what? Nechmada eats laskil. The tree is, is, is pleasant to haskil. We can translate haskil in different ways, but interestingly, in Devarim, Hashem uses it in Shmartem at Observe therefore the words of this covenant and do them that you may be like all that you, that all that you do will prosper. Let's translate it that way. The tree is pleasant in order to prosper. She says, you know what? It's crazy Chava. I'm going to eat from this tree. Now, she's spurred along by Mr. Snake. Right? She's got something else going on there. She's encouraged to break the rules. She's somehow got the idea that she's going to survive this experience. But when she takes a bite of that fruit, of that almond, that everybody, everybody knew not to eat, she redefines human experience. We talk about HaKadosh Baruch Hu as being the creator. Now, he, sometimes he can create from nothing. Bara is the word that we use. We get this idea almost from physics of the bush that burns that's not consumed is, uh, is beyond the possibility of our world of entropy of constant loss. You can't create without consuming something. Everything has to balance. But Hashem can in that physics sense. But he doesn't only do it in the physics sense, because while the world is full of 
of heat and, 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 and loss of order, you can create localized order. You can take things that are of a lower function and build them up. These are the things that Hashem defines as good. In the story of creation, heaven isn't good, Shabbat isn't good. The words good and holy never, ever occur together in the Chumash. Not in the same Pasuk. The closest we get is with the Mishkan, with the tabernacle, where Hashem says that you have Mamlech Kedusha, you have holy work, but you never have holy good with a H-O-L-Y. It never happens. Goodness is separate and distinct from holiness. And what is goodness? Goodness is raising things up, changing them, and giving them a higher and higher function. Let's go to the creation story. What's called good? First is light, the basic enabler of creation in our world. The second one is earth and seas, which enable you to have places for life. The third is yielding herbs. It's the first life itself, but it's a very basic life. It can't move around. It can't do different things. Then we have the sun and the moon, which is life that's able to flourish in a more stable environment, in a more stable reality. It seems strange to people that we have the sun and the moon on the fourth day. It's a bit of a tangent, but it's a fascinating one. Uh, we've begun to discover that quite possibly life didn't come from Earth. Uh, I'm not talking about complex life. I'm talking about basic life. It's kind of basic life being discovered and discussed here, these yielding herbs, right? The Hayabusa mission that went to Hayabusa asteroid, Japanese mission, and returned with samples has, has now been shown to have had 19 different amino acids discovered on the uh, on the comet, this, this dead comet floating through space, right? Was it life? No. <clears throat> but it's the building blocks of life. The building blocks of life coming from, from space. Uh, and then just this last week, there was another situation. They had these bacteria that specialize in building cellulose, uh, and they put them on the outside of the space station. See what would happen to them. And they brought them down, they studied them some more, they saw what happened. Um, not only did these bacteria survive on the outside of the space station, they actually evolved. They evolved a tremendous amount of antibiotic resistance and metal resistance. Why? I have no idea. I imagine we'll discover it's something that scares people for future space travel because if you have a you know, a very quickly developing bacterial infection that spreads across the surface of Mars and you're colonizing Mars, that could be a kind of thing that we don't typically cover in the movies in terms of a, an actual human-brought life form that ends up changing and destroying us in another place. But this is how the sun and the moon can be created after life is created because it didn't come from here. It came from someplace else and came here. It's called panspermia, and it's a, it's a theory that's becoming more and more popular with time. Next thing we have is these water animals. Again, they can move around. You have to have sizable oceans, I guess, for that to be re relevant and possible, or at least sizable amounts of water. Then land animals. And step by step, life is approaching the status of greater and greater independence. I think that this period is when we have man, not man is defined by the Torah, but man is defined by, uh, by biology. We have hundreds of thousands or millions of years of man, depending on how you want to define humankind. The reason you can do this is because, of course, day and night aren't sun and moon. Day and night are defined as day is a time of creation. Right? Day is a time of revolution in which you insert new ideas into the universe. And night is the time of evolution, in which those ideas spread and become part of the pattern of life. We, we see this in human physiology, right? We, we, we sleep, and we, we live in the day, and we sleep at night. When we sleep, sorry, when we're awake, we're bringing in all this information, 
our reality is changing, right? But when we sleep, we integrate it. We make sense of it. It all comes together and begins to form in useful ways. And so this process of days of creation is a process of revolution and evolution. It's a process of wakefulness and sleep, of activity and integration of what's been done because of that activity. At the end of this process, we create Adam, who has the spirit of God blown into him. He is meant to be the highest form. Because unlike all the other creations, he's not just there to replicate. He's not just there to support some higher function. He is there to imitate God as a creator. And beyond that, he's there to rest with God timelessly. He's there to actually experience holiness, which only occurs on the seventh day. And so you have this process of, 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 of creating life and change and development and acting in the form of God the creator. And then you have the process of resting with God timelessly. Now there's another word we can use for this kind of creation. This kind of creation isn't beyond the rule of physics. This is something we can almost understand ourselves through evolution. Um, we can understand it through evolution. We can understand how things begin to change and take positions and whatever it happens to be in our world. We've done a remarkable job of integrating that. But the word you can use if you imagine that this process is just nudged along a little bit. The first bird is given a bit of a hand to develop that combination of things that's necessary for it to be a bird. And then the world is re um, reinvented around the new possibility. That little push is called innovation. Right? There's no new mass. There's no new energy. There's just a higher and higher purpose for things that already exist. It's innovation. And who, who is the first innovator? Now we can describe, you know, ancient people using tools or whatever it happens to be. But the innovator who innovates by redefining the purpose of, of, of a life form that God has given us, who acts in the image of God most directly, is Chava. Right? She takes this poisonous tree that serves no function. She challenges the pre-existing conceptions and she finds a way to prosper through innovation. Now, of course, we don't tend to look at Eve or Chava in this way, but that's what she did. Now we can look at this and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. God didn't want this to happen. But what's the snake doing there? The snake's been brought for a purpose. The snake is not just accidental. We're not dealing with, uh, with Milton's paradise lost here. This is not Satan walking around trying to act against God. The Jewish conception, Satan is, 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 a, is a, a lawyer <laughs> on the side of, of whatever's against you, trying to get you convicted. He's the opposite of Moshe, standing up in your defense. And in fact, the Torah makes very clear the snake knows that he's not against God. She says, you eat the fruit, you're going to die. That's her defense. How does the snake overcome this? He says, eh, God's not going to kill you. Why isn't God going to kill you? Because he knows that you're going to learn. You're going to learn good and evil and you're going to be like God. 
We can read that as God not wanting us to learn, but actually, it's exactly the opposite. The snake is saying God's not going to kill you because he wants you to learn. And God doesn't kill her. Something else happens, but God doesn't kill her. So how does God react? I, mean, I want to look at the reactions of the different parties to what happens here, because in the past, you know, you get these pictures and they cover more and more of what's going on in the story, but there's so much going on in the story. And if you don't take into account all the little things, you end up in a situation where you really have an impartial picture. And I feel like I made such a breakthrough last week in understanding more and more of this picture. It's, it's really been eye-opening. So, Chava suffered from Tava. It's almost destructive restlessness that humans get when everything's good. We either got to break things or we got to do something productive. It's hard for us to do something productive, so we often just destroy things. And traditionally, I've read that exactly this way, right? She, she has to destroy the relationship with Hashem in order to experience the short-term pleasure of this fruit. The thing is, is that she actually sees long-term prosperity from this fruit, not just a nice taste. She's seeing something in the future. She's not just thinking in the here and now. So what's going on here? Well, Hashem, interestingly, he doesn't curse Chava. She says, describes that she's going to suffer through a husband. She's going to suffer through children, right? This is this is not fun by any stretch of the imagination. There's a tremendous amount of risk being brought in in order to create the future, right? She doesn't. The, 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 if you want to call it a sin, but it's not called a sin. It's really not called a sin in the Chumash. The idea of eating the the pleasure of the present in order to, but destroying the future in order to do so, she inverts that. Right? She's willing to put up with pain in the present in order to create the future. She's willing to suffer for the long term. This way, she's she's become fundamentally holy. But we can read it in another way. If that was actually her intent the whole time around, then what she's done is she's actually been doubled down on her decision. She's willing to take tremendous risks. She's willing to undergo stress and strain and trouble in order to create the future. She was willing to do so from the beginning. She understood that. She was willing to eat the fruit, despite the fact it could have killed her, or at least given her a really bad tummy ache. She's willing to break the rules in order to create a better future. So, like the best attributes of what she did are being distilled, her punishment from God. He's saying, you know what? I want more of that. I want that to be the core of who Chava is. Somebody who's willing to take risks to create the future. Interesting. At least for me. Second person is man. No, it actually goes in a different order than this, but we'll go with man next. Because the snake's the most interesting. So man was promised death on the day of eating, right? Hashem says, if you eat from this fruit, you're going to die that day. Mochimat, there's no question. You're dead. Hayom, that day. But man wasn't killed. So what happened? The snake was right, of course. The snake promised man, well, not man, the snake promised the woman wouldn't be killed. But, but why wasn't Man killed. The pasuk comes in two two stages of the verse. First one is Hashem says you disobeyed me. 
You ate the fruit I told you not to eat. Actually, maybe in the other order, I can't remember. The other part of the pasuk says is you listen to your wife. We often read this as condemnation. This man listened to his wife. He shouldn't have listened to his wife. Well, if he'd gone ahead and eaten the fruit himself without listening to his wife, if he'd done it in direct rebellion to Hashem from a commandment he got from God himself, Mochimat would have died. But he didn't. He did it because of her influence. And this is where the mercy comes from. He learned from somebody else. You know what? That's okay. You can learn from somebody else. Now, it doesn't result in a great, positive, wonderful, amazing outcome. But here, strangely, the man isn't cursed. The land is cursed. And what's the word for land that's used? It's not the Eretz. It's the Adama. For those of you who aren't as familiar with uh, Biblical Hebrew, Adam is a masculine word. That's the name of Adam. And Adama is the feminine form of the exact same word. So we have Chava yielding children in the future. And we have Adama yielding crops that enable us to support the future. And remarkably, the word for pain that Chava is going to suffer in childbirth is the same kind of pain that Adam is going to suffer when, in order to eat, in order to create the near-term future. Chava is creating the long-term future. Adam is using Adama to create the near-term future. And what is that word? It's Be'itzavon. Somehow, his survival in the here and now is linked directly to the same kind of sacrifice that Chava made, that Chava's going to make. He's going to eat of pain just as he's going to have pain in order to yield the long-term future. He's going to have pain to yield the near-term future. But the word, wording gets even weirder. The land is going to yield kots vidardar. Now we translate this often as, as thistles um, and I don't know, something else that's not friendly. Um, but the word kots is used or Kotz is used only once in Chumash, someplace else. It describes the gods of the other peoples as we travel from Egypt. But the gods are Elohei, the powers of the other peoples. And Dardar, well, kind of seems to have, does have the same letters as Dor Dor. Dor la Dor, generation to generation. So we can see the land yielding thistles and thorns, but we could also see the land yielding generations and this sort of non-divine power. Now, man is condemned to return to the dust. He's reminded of his place. But I think what's really going on here is that Hashem is saying, you listened to your wife. You chose her path, the path of innovation and self-reliance. All the pain that it brings with it is going to have. But you're going to do the same path that she has. You're going to use the Adama to yield the future through pain. You're going to yield generations. You're going to yield prosperity through innovation, through quotes, through understanding how to get power from the material world in which you live. You're going to have to find your own way towards sort of material prosperity. You're going to be reliant on Chava's path of innovation. We can look at this as a road of horror, but it's also a road of reality, of, of, of innovative reality, of ultimately scientific accomplishment.
if you can achieve scientific accomplishments, your kutz, your your natural powers, can be tremendous. You can support your future generations. We've seen this. We've seen infant mortality drop 80% since 1950 and youth mortality as well. When you live in a pre-modern world, people die, young people die all the time. My brother was one of them. But as you begin to evolve into the future and into a more and more advanced world delivered through Chava's innovation of finding things that are yes, less useful or finding things that are deadly and managing to make them useful, then you can, in fact, create a better physical reality. I'm going to get into this a bit more. Let's go to the snake next. Because the snake is punished. Why would you punish the snake? It did exactly what it was supposed to do, it seems. Chava and Adam were supposed to learn to create in the image of God. I guess ideally they could have actually tended the garden as they were commanded to do effectively, and they didn't. Right? That would be a better approach. But they were supposed to, 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 it was better for them to overstep their bounds. That's why the snake was there. It was better for them to overstep their bounds and be innovators and creators in the image of Hashem than it was for them just to sit there hanging out in the garden, not doing anything. So what was, this, what was the snake's mistake? Well, it's a critical mistake of wording. The snake says, you're going to be ki Elohim. You're going to be like God. Not B'Tselem Elohim. Not in the image of God, but actually like God. The snake overstepped. Just like we do. We think we are ki Elohim. We think because of our power over the natural world, we are equivalent to God. We are gods in our world. We control so much of it. The idea that in this ancient, ancient text, people could see themselves this way. But they did. They saw the technologies defining the world. The Egyptians saw their paros as gods. They saw their technology. This is why the, when the wheels come off the chariots, that's when their faith breaks. Because they trust in the technology. So you end up with a snake selling this image of being like God and not understanding the, the limits of that. So what happens to the snake? If you're like God, you've got this tremendous will like God. Legs represent will in the Torah. We see it in many cases. It's the ability to go from place to place. You're not just a plant. Well, the snake was too willful. So he was denied his legs and he was pushed down to the dust. He was pushed away from God to remind him of his physical nature and push him away from his divine nature whatever that divine nature would be. Now, it's a bit controversial to suggest that God wants us to push back in some way, but, but we see it again and again. Moshe's a fighter. Yaakov's a fighter. We have these different marriages in the Torah that are clearly off. Something's very wrong with them, and yet they're supported. And in fact, there's a prominent example. One of the defining examples of modern rabbinic Judaism is in the Gemara. Right? We have this huge fight over an oven, the halacha of an oven. And one of the Rabbanim, Rabbi Eliezer, I think it's Rabbi Eliezer, I'm always bad at these things, says the halacha is this way. The, the building's going to lean, the river's going to flow backwards, all these miracles are going to occur, and a voice from heaven's going to say the halacha is the way that this guy says it is. Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Gamliel say, no. We've decided that's not the way it is. Hashem doesn't matter what he thinks. 
this is stunning. Here we are saying it's not, you know, this Jewish law is not your issue. So Gemara relates, years later, Rabbi Natsan encountered Eliyahu the prophet and said to him, what did the Holy One, blessed be he, do at the time when Yehoshua issued his declaration? Eliyahu said to him, the Holy One, blessed be he, smiled and said, my children have triumphed over me. My children have triumphed over me. Hashem celebrates our growth and independence in order to have a greater relationship with him. But this decision, which excluded Rabbi Gamliel, well, not Rabbi Gamliel, excluded Rabbi Eliezer, and this decision, which locked down debate, and maybe in a way that we have to open up again now that we have our own state, maybe we should have a Sanhedrin again and all those kinds of stuff, but it locked down debate. This decision raised up our independence, our standing as a nation. It was an innovation, a legal innovation, but it came at a cost. Because the very next time the aggrieved rabbi said, Tachnun Rabbi Gamliel, died. And his wife, who was uh, Rabbi Eliezer's wife, who was the sister of Rabbi Gamliel, said she knew he was going to die. He was trying to stop him from saying Tachnun, from saying this, this particular prayer where we put down our head and pray. She wanted to stop him from saying it because she knew as soon as he did, God would kill Rabbi Gamliel for what he'd done. Because innovation inherently inherently breaks things. I work in a business that says uh, pushback. Right? We put electric wheels on aircraft to push them around. Quality manager for this business. We're going to break things. Not airplanes. People who had jobs pushing airplanes back. People who made tugs to push airplanes back. Every time you innovate, you break what was there before. So Hashem wants us to be independent beings, but we also have to understand that there's always something broken when that happens. There's always something that's destroyed when we humans make something new. Now the really fun part is not what happens with God. Yes, this idea that God wants us to be innovators. I mean, obviously there's limits. We're not supposed to be innovators like God. We're supposed to be innovators in the image of God. There's limits to how we do that. But the, the real innovation here is what happens to the people themselves. So before the people, well, Chava eats of the fruit, it says that they're Arumim. The word arum is translated in modern Hebrew as naked, and it is traditionally translated as naked in this context as well. Somehow, they're not wearing any clothes. But then the very next uh, verse describes the snake as the most arum, and we translate it totally differently. We translate it as subtle or sneaky. Somehow subtle and sneaky are associated with naked. It seems very odd, especially when people suggest that clothing is a way of covering up something about your true nature. So is this snake covering up or uncovering, right? This, this translation of these two words doesn't really make a lot of sense. If we go further along in the Torah, we see two other uses of the words arum, of the word arum. First one is, is really interesting. It's in Az Yashir. They're both interesting. In Az Yashir, it says, And the, the spirit of your nostrils 
congealed the waters. That's how we translate it. Congeal? I don't know. Good translation? I don't know. Let's see if we can find some, some commonalities. And the third one is, V'chi yazid ish el re'ehu lahargo ba'arma me'im mizbechi tikechenu lamut. If somebody plans to kill their neighbor, right, they sneak up on them, I don't know what the terms are exactly, the critical point here is this this word our room here is translated as having intent. Premeditation. When we talk about murder and we talk about killing, there's a very popular phrase which kind of relieves the amount of punishment. And it's not just in the Torah, it's a modern concept, a crime of passion. You came in on something, yeah, you, you just you were overwhelmed by the passion of the moment. <clears throat> the anger about what was going on, whatever it happened to be, and you killed somebody. You murdered them. But you were just doing it then and there. It wasn't something that you did beforehand and planned beforehand. How does this relate to congeal? Now, in the shiur I had in my house, we tried to find an English word to express these two ideas together, this congealed and this concept of premeditation. And the best I could do was... Uh, is a contrary expression. The phrase I came up with was, you're not going with the flow, right? The water's supposed to flow. The water's supposed to do what water does. It flows. You congeal the water. It does exactly what it's not supposed to do. And if you commit a crime of passion, you're just going with the natural flow of things. You're killing in the moment. But if you decide far in advance, and you plan it out, and you do all of the work, and you're no longer killing with the flow. You're no longer living within the flow. So let's apply this word to our present story. Let's start with the snake. The snake is the most arum. What does it suggest? The snake is the one who goes least with the flow. He's the guy who's going to stick his neck up and say, nope. <clears throat> I'm not going to go with the natural order of things. I'm going to do my own special thing. I'm going to break things. Perhaps be an innovator. What about Adam and Chava? They're both Arumim. They're both meant to resist. They're both meant to stand apart. Like HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who doesn't just leave the world as it is, but creates it. Adam Ishto. And despite this, they're not embarrassed because they weren't doing anything about it, right? They were sitting there just actually going with the flow, but they're not meant to. Their essence is supposed to be our room. Despite the fact they weren't accomplishing anything with their lives, they're just sitting there smoking pot in the Oregon forest. They weren't actually accomplishing what they were supposed to accomplish. They weren't embarrassed by the lack of accomplishment. But then after Chava experiences the power of innovation, after she realizes what she's capable of, after they both realize that the world they've been given is not a world that they just sit and watch, not a real world that they just cruise through like they're just surfing along on the waters. But the world they've been given, you know, Hakuna Matata and all that kind of stuff, the world they've been given is a world they're supposed to change. Not a world they're supposed to change, perhaps, well, of course, I think they are, but a world that they can change. They have this awesome power. 
And the first thing they do is they realize there are rumim, they get themselves fig leaves and they make themselves belts. Well, I mean, wow, cool, right? Everybody knows the image of the fig leaves. You can look at any Renaissance statue of, of Adam and, and Chava, Adam and Chava, and you'll see that they've got themselves Adam and Eve covered up with these fig leaves. It's a beautiful, great image, classic. Just covers what you need to cover. Well, I was curious, why was the Torah bothering to tell us about fig leaves? You can look online, try and find what figs are used for, trying to find something that stuck out about figs that would really be distinct, that would tell us why it was so important to mention figs, right? You can mention almonds in certain situations. That didn't have to be an almond. I guess you could have something else that was innovative, but you know, it matches up nicely. Why figs? So of course people use figs for Medicinal purposes, they can use, you know, even eating the leaves in some cases for medicinal purposes. Um, different sorts of things that people treated. I think uh, tuberculosis, I think, was something people treated with it. Obviously, constipation, and all sorts of things you can use for fig leaves, or for figs in that case. But wearing fig leaves, what does that do? What's so special about wearing a fig leaf? Turns out, a couple years ago, there was these kids, these four kids, who were playing in a town in northern Iran. And they decided to go play in the fig leaves. Now, apparently, this is not a common thing to do. I don't know, maybe they're not on the ground much, whatever it happens to be. They decided to go play in the fig leaves in the sun. And they were admitted to the hospital with second-degree burns. We're getting much worse. Their skin was being absolutely broken down and destroyed. Their, uh, the, um, the, the DNA breakdown due to the chemicals in the uh, fig leaves themselves and due to the, um, uh, the, the something in the sap of the fig tree itself that when it interacts with the leaf accelerates this process, results in massive, terrible, horrible burns when you combine it with sunlight. Just imagine for a second. Secondary burns. You can look at photos of this online. I'm happy to share them with people. They're they're really awful. This guy, this 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 the doctor who investigated it was really kind of surprised by what happened. He goes, fig leaves, really? And so he <laughs> he applied some fig leaves to himself for like 45 minutes, put them on a patch of his skin. And then, you know, initially and after about an hour, it began to hurt. I took it off. And then over the, I took it off. And then over the next four days. His entire arm erupted in these massive, destructive burns of his of, of his skin. So why the heck? I guess presuming they've got this knowledge passed down about not eating almonds, why the heck would they put on fig leaves? This is the worst possible piece of clothing to deal with the world. <clears throat> Doesn't cover much. <laughs> well, it does cover. I mean, damn, the burns... Burns are not nice. So the next verse, it says, Vayishmu et kol Hashem elokim mitalech began leruach hayom. They heard the voice of God. Not Hashem elokim, not just God. Yudke vavke, the timeless God, Elohim and the powerful one. Mitalech began, going in the garden, leruach hayom, in the spirit of the day. And what do they do? Vayit chabeh, they hid man and his wife from before Hashem. 
Just think about this for a second. They put on clothes, fig leaves, that meant that they could not be exposed to the sun. They could not be exposed to the yom. They could not be exposed to creation. They were running away from being godlike. Hashem brings, breathes his neshama into us. We have this voice of God within us, right? And their response is, we're going to run away. We have to run away from this. Hashem doesn't cause them this desire. It's just built in. This divine core that we have torments us. And we run from the day. <clears throat> in fact, we not only run, we take actions to ensure that we will have to run because it'll burn and hurt us so much if we're exposed to the sunlight. Now, to me, this is an explanation of some of the most common forms of mental hardship. Right? The, the image of people hiding in bed, not wanting to get out, not wanting to face the day, not wanting to face the world that they have to deal with. The Torah is saying here is, is that this isn't mental hardship. This is spiritual hardship. We are meant, <clears throat> built into us. We have the call of Hashem Elohim, the ability to have this, this voice of timelessness and of power. We have a spirit of the day, the ability to actually create and do things. And when we realize how much power we have, we run from it. Do we run because we're afraid we're not going to use it well enough? That we actually can't live up to being Ke Elohim? Quite possibly. <clears throat> Faced with the possibility of not using our lives well enough, as I described at the very beginning, of not having the impact we should have with our lives, this is temptation to hide under the covers and not come out. In order to get past this, you have to recognize, <clears throat> you have to recognize that you don't have to be Ke Elohim. You don't have to be like God. You don't have to have these infinite powers. You don't have to be indispensable to the nature of the universe. We're all going to die. All you have to do is be B'Tselem Elohim. All you have to do is be in the, the image of Hashem. It's much less of an ask, much less aggressive of something that we need to accomplish in order to live up to who we can be. Now remember, God doesn't kick the people out as soon as they eat of the fruit. That's not what undermines them. God kicks them out when they deny responsibility. <clears throat> God kicks them out when they run from the potential of what they could be. The punishments that he engenders, the reality that he engenders, forces them to have to build their way back to responsibility, forces them to have to build their way back to a divine relationship because they made the mistake of thinking they could be Ke'elohim. But again, Ke'elohim has, has these two boundaries. One is that we have to remember that we don't have to aim that high. We don't have to aim that high. But at the same time, we have to remember that if we do aim that high, what we create... It's a tremendous emptiness because we're not like God. 
we don't have that purpose within us. Uh, it's a modern thing to say hey, God isn't everybody if you want to have God or God isn't in anybody because God doesn't exist. But in either case, what you end up with is, is this image of humankind as being equivalent <clears throat> in some way to Hukadosh Baruch Hu, in some way to God. And there's nothing higher than serving the desires and the definitions of whoever he people happen to be. But all too often, there is no there there. There's no definition of who we really are. Right? And certain things, certain people are very well defined. You can take something considered as fundamental today as sexual preferences. Certain percentage of people undeniably have one kind of sexual preference. Certain numbers of people undeniably have another kind of sexual preference. No matter where you put them, they're going to be in the same situation. But most men, I don't know about women, but most men, you put them on a ship or in a prison, and you discover, they discover, that they're more flexible than they understood before. Because for most people, most things are on a spectrum. Were actually quite valuable. And so when we look at some inner core that we're trying to serve, we ultimately discover that there's very little there. It's very unsatisfying. Because again, we're only meant to be B'Tselem We're not ourselves gods. We're not ourselves definers of our world. We're just playing in the world that Hashem has given us. There's a very strange thing that occurs afterwards during throughout the story. It's a question that can be raised. What, what tree did Chava eat from? Because in the beginning, it says, right? There's a tree of life in the middle of the garden and there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then it says, you shouldn't eat. From this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shouldn't eat. And then another verse says, the snake says to, 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 to Chava, from the tree that's in the middle of the gun, you shouldn't eat. And she eats from the tree in the middle of the gun. So if we go back to the beginning here, it's a chayim Did she eat from the tree of life? Or did she eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Now they're punished for eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But it was in the middle of the gun seems to me like there's intentional confusion about this. That in fact, these two are one and the same tree. She eats the fruit of the tree. The fruit of this tree of knowledge, good and evil, is this power of innovation. But she doesn't eat from the tree itself. I'm not suggesting go eat almond bark. What I'm suggesting is that eating from the, the core understanding, almost beyond human understanding, of the possibilities of good and evil is something that we can't do. Because when we do that, we're going to be convinced we're like God. And we're never going to be able to have the divine relationship that we're intended for. Hashem created something close to Him, but something fundamentally different. We have to have a relationship with God. And the only have, way to have a relationship is to not be the same. I think this goes back to why Hashem chooses Moshe and why He chooses Yisrael. He wants to choose those who are a little different, who are a little resistant, who don't just get along. Because otherwise, you're just dealing with robots. And when the people leave, when they're sent out, it says that there's a Kruvim, these two angels stand with shining swords that twist and turn. Right, This great image of these turning swords. 
I, I almost get this idea of, um, <clears throat> I think it was Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? The guy with the swords twisting in the air and he just shoots them, right? And get through the swords. But the words for all these things are, are different in different places. Keruvim, of course, are close. They're close to Hashem. These things that are close to God. But the word for flaming is not actually fire. It's actually used to describe the Egyptian enchantments that they used to copy the miracle of turning the blood, the Nile to blood. It's kind of magic or sleight of hand. And the word for turning is to use to change things, right? changing the water of the Nile to blood. So we have this idea of things, it's also twisting them upside down, right? It's not just turning, it's like undermining and shifting how things work. And the word for sword, charev, is also used for a drought. A world without water, a world in which there is no going with the flow, right? A world in which you have to do everything without just getting there. But this describes to me, it's a struggle to get back to the tree of life. We're supposed to get there. We're supposed to get back to the garden. But we chose the path of innovation. We chose the path of walking Ke Elohim. Ideally, we'll understand that we want to walk B'Tselem Elohim. We're going to walk in the image of God. But for anybody who's worked in the sciences, who's worked in the world of innovation, even innovation in a, in a cultural and a legal respect, what you end up with is, is that the world you encounter is one in which there's constant sleight of hand, in which the assumptions you're, you see are being constantly turned around. You've got to question the science. In a world in which you have to have intent and purpose and drive, which you can't just go with the flow, in which you have to innovate, in order to turn, return to the tree of life, we have to fight through these things. In order to get close to God, we have to fight through these things. We have to be world changers who can get past all the tricks Hashem has thrown at us to make the world confusing. Isaac Newton's famous epitaph said, Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be, and there was light. Newton died a long time ago. And even now we understand there's so much we don't understand. In fact, there's so much more we don't understand than we didn't understand then. At the same time, we've gotten closer and closer and closer to the tree of life, towards material prosperity, towards through innovation. It's remarkable the things that have been done. I talked again and again about pain. There's two kinds of pain here. One is physical pain. One is pain driven by the outside. A lack of food. In some cases, you know, genetic problems that might lead to, to severe mental illness. We have this sort of pain, and this is the sort of pain that drives us down the path of Chava, which individually and as societies, we have to learn to leverage innovation to make the world better. Scientifically, spiritually, well, not spiritually, legally, culturally, we have to make the world better. The thing is, is that addressing those material problems doesn't address the other kind of pain. 
doesn't address the kind of hiding that Chava wants to do, the, the anxiety and depression that runs so strongly throughout the Western world. Westerners talk about wanting to be happy. Nothing's more important than being happy. And so we apply a scientific approach to it. You say, we're going to use this drug. We're going to use this technique. We're going to figure out what you really want. We're going to make everything add up perfectly, internally, in this humanistic way. By virtue of that, you're going to be happy. That sounds great, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. The U.S. is phenomenally wealthy. It relies greatly on science. And the mental health problems the United States suffers are incredible and just growing. And it's not just a matter of diagnosis. Suicide rates are climbing dramatically. People are not being made happy. If you want to compare across societies, it's incredibly stark. Look at Israel. Our suicide rate is 5.2 per 100,000. Europe's at like 10.4. The U.S. is like 15. Israel, this place that has all these problems, all these natural causes of anxiety, has a lower reported rate of anxiety. And I don't think it's just reports. A lower reported rate of anxiety than any Western nation. Because anxiety could be fear of the unknown, but I think so much of it, so much of this depression and anxiety is a sense of a lack of purpose and a sense of a fear of the purpose when you discover what you can do. Like you're not doing enough, like you're not living your life well enough. We can't science our way out of that. We have to spiritual, spiritualize. It's a spiritual illness that we have to get out of. Now, I'm not suggesting that there isn't excellent use and excellent cause of mental health care, of mental, uh, of, of drugs in certain situations. But you want to ask yourself a question. If the treatment is just something that's papering over issues temporarily, if it's hiding you from spiritual anxiety, real spiritual anxiety, that uh, spiritual anxiety generated internally or generated externally, whatever it happens to be, I think it's so often generated internally. If it's hiding you from something that should be fixed, then that treatment is a fig leaf. It ends up burning. It ends up becoming a reason to avoid the sun. It ends up preventing you from being as much like God or as much in the image of God as you should be. Let me just rephrase that. Let me just say it again. We're getting ourselves sicker and sicker and sicker mentally, less and less happy, because we're being sent within ourselves a spiritual message that we are meant to walk in the path of Hashem. We are meant to walk in the image of Hashem. And either we are failing to do it, just going with the flow entirely, or we are imagining that we are gods, that we are God, that we are the source and definition of all that is good, and that nothing is more important than us as individuals. Either way you go, you are going to create spiritual sickness. And this spiritual sickness, you can take a drug to make yourself feel better, but it's just a fig leaf. It's just a way of hiding, and ultimately it destroys and it burns. Again, 
perfectly legitimate. Somebody listening to this, I believe, is works in brain science, right? And he's working on fixing issues that people have when they, I don't know exactly why, I'm not an expert in this sort of thing, but you know, the kinds of issues people have with, 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 with uh, the, the, the waves in your brain not firing in the way in which they should, he's trying to relieve it. This is a wonderful thing. I'm not talking about, um, I'm not suggesting that there's no purpose for mental health care. What I'm suggesting is that the mental health care should be directed towards enabling us to walk in the path of Hashem as imitators of Hashem and should not drive us to think we are Hashem or that we are not. Actually, enable us to ignore the fact that we're not living up to who we should be. There's this middle path, this middle way throughout this. So my key takeaways from all of this, going back to the original subject of pain, this physical pain is there to drive us to innovate, and, and we've learned to do it. It's amazing. It's ironic almost that for so many millennia, religion was a reason not to physically innovate, not to scientifically innovate. I think the Torah is suggesting the opposite. I think in this very early story, the Torah is suggesting that we've chosen that path to imitate God more than just as people who farm in the world that God creates for us, which we didn't do in the garden anyway. We've chosen the path of innovation, and to walk in the path of Hashem, we have to do what Hashem does and recreate our existence. But there's also that mental side that we have to remember, and our and our our, our spiritual nerve endings are telling us to remember when we are not relating to Hashem correctly, when we're not satisfying our spiritual needs the way we should be. Now, I just started with this last week, this concept, this track, this approach to the problem. Um, it's a new thing for me. And so I'm sure I'm going to develop it more. In fact, just this morning, I wrote something that that uh, are regulated as an understood in the right path, realization of who we are and response to that and actions that build on who we are are the keys to our ultimate redemption. I'm, I'm learning these ideas, I'm figuring them out, I'm understanding how they apply, how they run through the Chumash, how they can teach us to be spiritually healthier. How the symbolism of the Chumash, I'm starting in Parshat Chukat soon, right out this next week, give a shiur about, about how this red cow can make us healthier. I'm still learning these things and integrating them. This has been, this last week was a, was a week of Yom, a week of daytime. It's going to take me some Lila to make sense of it and see how it all fits together. That all being said, though, I'd love to have your feedback. I'd love to have your thoughts. It was a little long. I didn't, I didn't script this one, obviously. But if you enjoyed this podcast, please think about sharing it. Because ultimately, what I'm trying to do is help people out. And if these ideas can gestate in other people's minds, they can come up with their own ideas, they can come up with how they might apply in their own lives, how they might be able to build them up and help them live not happier, but lives in the, in the image of God, which will ultimately result in happier lives, then I would be delighted to see that to happen. There's so much human potential that we waste and so much pain that I really don't think we need to experience. So please, God, You'll find this useful. You'll find this helpful. And I want to thank you very much for listening. Have a great week.